Volume One, Section Three of the Life of Charlotte Bronte. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Charlotte Bronte by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell, Volume One, Section Three. From this time, he devoted himself with the fervor of a Wesley and something of the fanaticism of Whitfield, to calling out a religious life among his parishioners. They had been in the habit of playing at football on Sunday, using stones for this purpose, and giving and receiving challenges from other parishes. There were horse-races held on the moors just above the village, which were periodical sources of drunkenness and profligacy. Scarcely a wedding took place without the rough amusement of foot-races, where the half-naked runners were a scandal to all decent strangers. The old custom of arvilles, or funeral feasts, led to frequent pitched battles between the drunken mourners. Such customs were the outward signs of the kind people with whom Mr. Grimshaw had to deal. But, by various means, some of the most practical kinds, he wrought a great change in his parish. In his preaching he was occasionally assisted by Wesley and Whitfield, and at such times the little church proved much too small to hold the throng that poured in from distant villages, or lonely moorland hamlets, and frequently they were obliged to meet in the open air. Indeed, there was not room enough in the church even for the communicants. Mr. Whitfield was once preaching in Haworth, and made use of some such expression as that he hoped there was no need to say much to this congregation, as they had sat under so pious and godly a minister for so many years. Whereupon Mr. Grimshaw stood up in his place, and said with a loud voice, "'Oh, sir, for God's sake do not speak so. I pray you do not flatter them. I fear the greater part of them are going to hell with their eyes open.' But if they were so bound, it was not for want of exertion on Mr. Grimshaw's part to prevent them." He used to preach twenty or thirty times a week in private houses. If he perceived any one inattentive to his prayers, he would stop and rebuke the offender, and not go on till he saw every one on their knees. He was very earnest in enforcing the strict observance of Sunday, and he would not even allow his parishioners to walk in the fields between services. He sometimes gave out a very long psalm, tradition says the hundred and nineteenth, and while it was being sung, he left the reading-desk, and, taking a horsewhip, went into the public-houses, and flogged the loiterers into church. They were swift, who could escape the lash of the parson by sneaking out the back way. He had strong health and an active body, and rode far and wide over the hills, awakening those who had previously had no sense of religion. To save time and be no charge to the families at whose houses he held his prayer-meetings, he carried his provisions with him. All the food he took, in the day on such occasions, consisting simply of a piece of bread and butter, or dry bread and a raw onion. The horse-races were justly objectionable to Mr. Grimshaw. They attracted numbers of profligate people to Haworth, and brought a match to the combustible materials of the place only too ready to blaze out into wickedness. The story is that he tried all means of persuasion, and even intimidation, to have the races discontinued, 
but in vain. At length, in despair, he prayed with such fervor and earnestness that the rain came down in torrents, and deluged the ground, so that there was no footing for man or beast. Even if the multitude had been willing to stand such a flood let down from above. And so Howarth races were stopped. Ends have never been resumed to this day. Even now the memory of this good man is held in reverence, and his faithful ministrations and real virtues are one of the boasts of the parish. But after his time I fear there was a falling back into the wild, rough heathen ways from which he had pulled them up, as it were, by the passionate force of his individual character. He had built a chapel for the Wesleyan Methodists, and not very long after the Baptists established themselves in a place of worship. Indeed, as Dr. Whitaker says, the people of this district are strong religionists. Only fifty years ago their religion did not work down into their lives. Half that length of time back the code of morals seemed to be formed upon that of their Norse ancestors. Revenge was handed down from father to son as an hereditary duty, and a great capability for drinking without the head being affected was considered one of the manly virtues. The games of football on Sunday, with the challenges to the neighboring parishes, were resumed, bringing in an influx of riotous strangers to fill the public houses and make the more sober-minded inhabitants long for good Mr. Grimshaw's stout arm and ready horsewhip. The old custom of Arvilles was as prevalent as ever. The sexton, standing at the foot of the open grave, announced that the Arville would be held at the Black Bull, or whatever public house might be fixed upon by the friends of the dead, and thither the mourners and their acquaintances repaired. The origin of the custom had been the necessity of furnishing some refreshment for those who came from a distance, to pay their last mark of respect to a friend. In the life of Oliver Haywood there are two quotations which show what sort of food was provided for Arvilles in quiet nonconformist connections in the seventeenth century. The first, from Thorsby, tells of cold possets, stewed prunes, cake, and cheese, as being the Arville after Oliver Haywood's funeral. The second gives, as rather shabby, according to the notion of the times, 1673, nothing but a bit of cake, draught of wine, piece of rosemary, and pair of gloves. But the Arvilles at Haworth were often far more jovial doings. Among the poor, the mourners were only expected to provide a kind of spiced roll for each person, and the expense of the liquors, rum or ale or a mixture of both, called dog's nose, was generally defrayed by each guest, placing some money on a plate set in the middle of the table. Richer people would order a dinner for their friends. At the funeral of Mr. Charnock, the successor, but one, to Mr. Grimshaw in the incumbency, above eighty people were bid to the Arville, and the price of the feast was four s sixty per head, all of which was defrayed by the friends of the deceased. As few shirked their liquor, there were some very frequently up-and-down fights before the close of the day, sometimes with the hard additions of pausing and gouging and biting. Although I have dwelt on the exceptional traits in the characteristics of these stalwart West Ridingers, 
such as they were in the first quarter of the century, if not a few years earlier, I have little doubt that in the everyday life of the people so independent, willful, and full of grim humor, there would be much found, even at present, that would shock those accustomed only to the local manners of the South. And, in return, I suspect the shrewd, sagacious, energetic Yorkshire men would hold such foreigners in no small contempt. I have said, it is most probable that where Haworth Church now stands, there was once an ancient field-kirk, or oratory. It occupied the third or lowest class of ecclesiastical structures, according to the Saxon law, and had no right of sepulchre, or administration of sacraments. It was so called because it was built without enclosure, and open to the adjoining fields or moors. The founder, according to the laws of Edgar, was bound, without subtracting from his tithes, to maintain the ministering priest out of the remaining nine parts of his income. After the Reformation, the right of choosing the clergyman at any of those chapels of ease, which had formerly been field kirks, was vested in the freeholders and trustees, subject to the approval of the vicar of the parish. But owing to some negligence, this right has been lost to the freeholders and trustees at Haworth, ever since the days of Archbishop Sharp, and the power of choosing a minister has lapsed into the hands of the vicar of Bradford. So runs the account, according to one authority. Mr. Bronte says, This living has for its patrons the vicar of Bradford and certain trustees. My predecessor took the living with the consent of the vicar of Bradford, but in opposition to the trustees, in consequence of which he was so opposed that, after only three weeks' possession, he was compelled to resign. A Yorkshire gentleman, who has kindly sent me some additional information on this subject, since the second edition of my work was published, write thus. The sole right of presentation to the incumbency of Haworth is vested in the vicar of Bradford. He only can present. The funds, however, from which the clergyman's stipend mainly proceeds, are vested in the hands of trustees, who have the power to withhold them if a nominee is sent of whom they disapprove. On the decease of Mr. Charnock, the vicar first tendered the preferment to Mr. Bronte, and he went over to his expected cure. He was told that towards himself they had no personal objection, but as a nominee of the vicar he would not be received. He therefore retired, with the declaration that if he could not come with the approval of the parish, his ministry could not be useful. Upon this the attempt was made to introduce Mr. Redhead's. When Mr. Redhead was repelled, a fresh difficulty arose. Someone must first move towards a settlement, but a spirit being evoked which could not be allayed, action became perplexing. The matter had to be referred to some independent arbitrator, and my father was the gentleman to whom each party turned its eye. A meeting was convened, and the business settled by the vicar's conceding the choice to the trustees, and the acceptance of the vicar's presentation. That choice, forthwith, fell on Mr. Bronte, whose promptness and prudence had won their hearts. In conversing on the character of the inhabitants of the West Riding with Dr. Scoresby, who had been for some time vicar of Bradford, he alluded to certain riotous transactions which had taken place at Haworth on the presentation of the living to Mr. Redhead, and said that there had been so much in the particulars indicative of the character of the people 
that he advised me to inquire into them. I have accordingly done so, and from the lips of some of the survivors, among the actors and spectators, I have learnt the means taken to eject the nominee of the vicar. The previous incumbent had been the Mr. Charnock, whom I have mentioned as next but one in succession to Mr. Grimshaw. He had a long illness, which rendered him unable to discharge his duties without assistance, and Mr. Redhead gave him occasional help, to the great satisfaction of the parishioners, and was highly respected by them during Mr. Charnock's lifetime. But the case was entirely altered when, at Mr. Charnock's death in 1819, they conceived that the trustees had been unjustly deprived of their rights by the vicar of Bradford, who appointed Mr. Redhead as perpetual curate. The first Sunday he officiated, Howarth Church was filled even to the aisles, most of the people wearing the wooden clogs of the district. But while Mr. Redhead was reading the second lesson, the whole congregation, as by one impulse, began to leave the church, making all the noise they could, with clattering and clumping of clogs, till at length Mr. Redhead and the clerk were the only two left to continue the service. This was bad enough, but the next Sunday the proceedings were far worse. Then, as before, the church was well filled, but the aisles were left clear. Not a creature, not an obstacle, was in the way. The reason for this was made evident about the same time in the reading of the service as the disturbances had begun the previous week. A man rode into the church upon an ass, with his face turned towards the tail, and as many old hats piled upon his head as he could possibly carry. He began urging his beast round the aisles, and the screams and cries and laughter of the congregation entirely drowned all sound of Mr. Redhead's voice, and I believe he was obliged to desist. Hitherto they had not proceeded to anything like personal violence, but on the third Sunday they must have been greatly irritated at seeing Mr. Redhead, determined to brave their will, ride up the village street, accompanied by several gentlemen from Bradford. They put up their horses at the Black Bull, the little inn close upon the churchyard for the convenience of Arvilles, as well as for other purposes, and went into church. On this the people followed, with the chimney-sweeper, with whom they had employed to clean the chimneys of some outbuildings belonging to the church that very morning, and afterward plied with drink till he was in a state of solemn intoxication. They placed him right before the reading-desk, where his blackened face nodded a drunken, stupid assent to all that Mr. Redhead said. At last, either prompted by some mischief-maker, or from some tipsy impulse, he clambered up the pulpit stairs, and attempted to embrace Mr. Redhead. Then the profane fun grew fast and furious. Some of the more riotous pushed the soot-covered chimney-sweeper against Mr. Redhead, as he tried to escape. They threw both him and his tormentor down on the ground in the churchyard where the soot-bag had been emptied, and, though at last, Mr. Redhead escaped into the black bull, the doors of which were immediately barred, the people raged without, threatening to stone him and his friends. One of my informants is an old man, who was the landlord of the inn at the time, and he stands to it that such was the temper of the irritated mob, that Mr. Redhead was in real danger of his life. This man, however, planned an escape for his unpopular inmates. 
the black bull is near the top of the long, steep Howarth Street, and at the bottom, close by the bridge, on the road to Kiley, is a turnpike. Giving directions to his hunted guests to steal out at the back door, through which probably many a ne'er-do-well has escaped from good Mr. Grimshaw's horsewhip, the landlord and some of the stable boys rode the horses belonging to the party from Bradford backwards and forwards before his front door, among the fiercely expectant crowd. Through some opening between the houses, those on the horses saw Mr. Redhead and his friends creeping along behind the street, and then, striking spurs, they dashed quickly down to the turnpike, the obnoxious clergyman and his friends mounted in haste, and had sped some distance before the people found out that their prey had escaped, and came running to the closed turnpike gate. This was Mr. Redhead's last appearance at Haworth for many years. Long afterwards he came to preach, and in his sermon to a large and attentive congregation he good-humouredly reminded them of the circumstances which I have described. They gave him a hearty welcome, for they owed him no grudge, although before they had been ready enough to stone him, in order to maintain what they considered to be their rights. The foregoing account, which I heard from two of the survivors, in the presence of a friend who can vouch for the accuracy of my repetition, has to a certain degree been confirmed by a letter from a Yorkshire gentleman, whose words I have already quoted. I am not surprised at your difficulty in authenticating matter-of-fact. I find this in recalling what I have heard, and the authority on which I have heard anything. As to the donkey tale, I believe you are right. Mr. Redhead and Dr. Ramsbotham, his son-in-law, are no strangers to me. Each of them has a niche in my affections. I have asked, this day, two persons who lived in Haworth at the time to which you allude, the son and daughter of an acting trustee, and each of them between sixty and seventy years of age, and they have assured me that the donkey was introduced. One of them says it was mounted by a half-witted man, seated with his face towards the tail of the beast, and having several hats piled on his head. Neither of my informants was, however, present at these edifying services. I believe that no movement was made in the church on either Sunday until the whole of the authorized reading service was gone through. And I am sure that nothing was more remote from the most respectable party than any personal antagonism toward Mr. Redhead. He was one of the most amiable and worthy of men, a man to myself endeared by many ties and obligations. I never heard before your book that the sweep ascended the pulpit steps. He was present, however, in the clerical habiliments of his order. I may also add that among the many who were present at those sad Sunday orgies the majority were non-residents, and came from those moorland fastnesses on the outskirts of the parish locally designated as Over the Steers one stage more remote than Haworth from modern civilization. To an instance or two more of the rusticity of the inhabitants of the chapelry of Haworth, I may introduce you. A Haworth carrier called at the office of a friend of mine to deliver a parcel on a cold winter's day, and stood with the door open. "'Robin, shut the door,' said the recipient. "'Have you no doors in your country?' "'Yoy,' responded Robin. "'We have, but we never stick em. I have frequently remarked the number of doors open, even in winter. 
when well directed the indomitable and independent energies of the natives of this part of the country are invaluable dangerous when perverted i shall never forget the fierce actions and utterances of one suffering from delirium tremens whether in its wrath disdain or in its dismay the countenance was infernal i called once upon a time on a most respectable yeoman and i was in language earnest and homely pressed to accept the hospitality of the house i consented the word to me was nay master you mun stop and have some tea you mun eh you mun a beautiful table was soon spread at all events time soon went while i scaled the hills to see tamer at worth thirty years odes and it fail at were fewer on sitting down to the table a venerable woman officiated and after filling the cups she thus addressed me nay master you mun loose the table loose the table the master said shamins you mun say to grace i took the hint and uttered the blessing i spoke with an aged and tried woman at one time who after recording her mercies stated among others her powers of speech by asserting thank the lord i never were a mily-mouthed woman i feel particularly at fault in attempting the orthography of the dialect but must excuse myself by telling you that i once saw a letter in which the word i have just now used excuse was written exquise there are some things however which rather tend to soften the idea of the rudeness of haworth no rural district has been more markedly the abode of musical taste and acquirements and this at a period when it was difficult to find them to the same extent apart from towns in advance of their times i have gone to haworth and found an orchestra to meet me filled with local performers vocal and instrumental to whom the best works of handel haydn mozart marcello etc etc were familiar as household words by knowledge taste and voice they were markedly separate from ordinary village choirs and have been put in extensive requisition for the solo and chorus of many an imposing festival one man still survives who for fifty years has had one of the finest tenor voices i ever heard and with it a refined and cultivated taste to him and to others many inducements have been offered to migrate but the loom the association the mountain air have had charms enough to secure their continuance at home i love the recollection of their performance that recollection extends over more than sixty years the attachments the antipathies and the hospitalities of the district are ardent hearty and homely cordiality in each is the prominent characteristic as a people these mountaineers have ever been accessible to gentleness and truth so far as i have known them but excite suspicion or resentment and they defy emphatic and not impotent resistance compulsion they defy i accompanied mr heap on his first visit to haworth after his accession to the vicarage of bradford it was on easter day either eighteen sixteen or eighteen seventeen his predecessor the venerable john cross known as the blind vicar had been inattentive to the vicarial claims a searching investigation had to be made and enforced 
and as it proceeded stout and sturdy utterances were not lacking on the part of the parishioners. To a spectator, though rude, they were amusing, and significant, foretelling what might be expected, and what afterwards realized, on the advance of a new incumbent, if they deemed him an intruder. From their peculiar parochial position and circumstances, the inhabitants of the chapelry had been prompt, earnest, and persevering in their opposition to church rates. Although ten miles from the mother church, they were called upon to defray a large portion of this obnoxious tax, I believe one-fifth. Besides this, they had to maintain their own edifice, etc., etc. They resisted, therefore, with energy, that which they deemed to be oppression and injustice. By scores they would wend their way from the hills to attend a vestry meeting at Bradford, and in such service failed not to show less of the suaviter in modo than the fortiguer in re. Happily such occasions for their action has not occurred for many years. The use of patronomics has been common in this locality. Inquire for a man by his Christian name and surname, and you may have some difficulty in finding him. Ask, however, for George Ned's, or Dick a Bob's, or Tom a Jack's, as the case may be, and your difficulty is at an end. In many instances the person is designated by his residence. In my early years I had occasion to inquire for Jonathan Whitaker, who owned a considerable farm in the township. I was sent hither and thither until it occurred to me to ask for Jonathan of the gate. My difficulties were then at an end. Such circumstances arise out of the settled character and isolation of the natives. Those who have witnessed a Haworth wedding, when the parties were above the rank of laborers, will not easily forget the scene. A levy was made on the horses of the neighborhood, and a merry cavalcade of mounted men and women, single or double, traversed the way to Bradford Church. The inn and church appeared to be in natural connection, and as the laborers of the temperance society had then to begin, the interests of sobriety were not always consulted. On remounting their steeds they commenced with a race, and not unfrequently an inebriate, or unskillful horseman, or woman, was put hors de combat. A race also was frequent at the ends of these wedding expeditions, from the bridge to the toll-bar at Haworth. The race-course you will know to be anything but level. Into the midst of this lawless, yet not unkindly population, Mr. Bronte brought his wife and six little children in February 1820. There are those yet alive who remember seven heavily laden carts lumbering slowly up to the long stone street, bearing the new parson's household goods to his future abode. One wonders how the bleak aspect of their new home, the low, oblong stone parsonage, high up, yet with a still higher background of sweeping moors, struck on the gentle, delicate wife, whose health even then was failing. End of section 3 Recording by Katie Riley March 2009